Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Okay, well, Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing today our series, our long march through the book of Mark. Um, today is part 33. If you've missed any, we've got them all up on our YouTube and on our website. And we're actually going to take a slight detour today. So we're actually not going to be in the book of Mark today. Instead, we're going to look at a parallel passage uh, in the book of John, because this passage contains some key key, uh, content in the next sequence of events uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, that are not actually found in the book of Mark. So in particular, this contains a key passage of self-identification, where Yeshua asserts his own deity. And so turn with me now to Yochanan, the, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. John 18, verses 1 to 11. And, and the text tells us this. Uh, when he'd finished praying, Yeshua left with his Tamidim, with his disciples, and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side was a garden, and uh, he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Yeshua often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden guided by a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and and weapons. Yeshua, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Yeshua of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Yeshua said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Yeshua said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Yeshua of Nazareth, they said. Yeshua answered, I told you, I am he. If you're, if you're looking for me, let these men go. This happened so that the words he'd spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. Then Shimon Kepha, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Yeshua commanded Peter, Put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is the famous account of the arrest of Yeshua. Judas brings uh, the soldiers into the Garden of Gethsemane and and betrays Yeshua, and they arrest him. And we're going to see three key themes in this account on the overhead. So number one, we're going to see the greatest claim. Number two, the greatest problem. And three, the greatest mission in the history of the world. So the greatest claim, the greatest problem, and the great solution and mission. So first, the greatest claim. We see this in John 18, verses 4 to 5, where it says, uh, Yeshua, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Yeshua of Nazareth, they said. Yeshua Hanatzarid, Yeshua of Nazareth. Uh, I am he, Yeshua said. Now, this is very important. In the actual Greek text, Yeshua doesn't say, I am he. The word he is not there. He simply says, in, in Greek, ego eimi, I am. Now, in Shemot, Exodus chapter 3, when God appears to Moshe, when Moses in the burning bush, and tells, tells Moses, go to Pharaoh, and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and then go to the people of Israel as well, uh, and Moses asked him, when I go to the Israelites, who should I say sent me? What's your name? And then in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, Ehiyeh, Asher, Ehiyeh. 
I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent, sent me to you. Just the verb to be, I am. That's my name, the Lord says. I, I was, I am, I will be. I'm the self-existent one. I have the very power of being in me as part of my essential nature. And earlier in the Gospel of John, the Pharisees are, are debating with Yeshua and they're bragging about being children of Abraham. And Yeshua says to them in John 8:58, before Abraham was, I am. Now he didn't say, uh, before Abraham existed, I was, which would have been an amazing enough statement. But instead he says, before Abraham was, I am. Deliberately referencing Exodus 3.14 and the burning bush and making himself equal with, indeed identical with, one with God. And the Pharisees knew exactly what he was saying because in the very next verse we read this in John 8.59. Uh, At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Yeshua hid, hid himself, slipping away uh, from the temple grounds. Yeshua in John 8.58, and now here again in John 18.5, is taking the divine name upon himself. And based on the power of these words, this, this big crowd that was coming against him falls backwards uh, to the ground. Isaiah 11.4 tells us about the power of, of the words of God. It tells us that the Messiah will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he'll slay the wicked. Indeed, we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, he will slay with the breath of his mouth. And in Revelation uh, 19:15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, the goyim. The force of his words, I am, propelled the multitudes back. Uh, they fell to the ground, as it's written in Psalm 27, verse 2, when evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. There are actually 10 famous I am statements in the Gospel of John. We're going to put them on the overhead here. He says, uh, I am he. I am the bread of life. Before Abraham was, I am. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And then again, number 10, I am he, which he says twice. Now, this is simply astonishing that Yeshua expressly takes on the divine name here. When the Lord God Almighty says, I am, there's a lot packed into that statement. We use the verb to be uh, with an object. You know, we say, I'm this, I'm that, but God doesn't do that. His name is, I am. He just is. He's saying, there's no beginning to me, there's no ending to me, and there's no I am because. Uh, there's no prior cause to me. Nothing created me. I don't depend on my being on anyone or anything. Rather, all persons and all things depend entirely, every second, on me. Now, that's a staggering statement. But here's what's really staggering. When a living, breathing human being, Yeshua the Messiah, takes that name upon himself. That's staggering. That's astonishing. And it's also a problem for us uh, in our contemporary Western culture. Because Yeshua is saying something here that no other founder of any other major religion ever said. In fact, he's saying the exact opposite 
of what everyone else has ever said. Because every other founder of a major religion was a prophet or a sage, and, when they, and, and they said, what they said was, this is the way to the truth. This is the truth. I've come to bring you to the truth. Or they said, this is the way to live. But Yeshua has the audacity to say in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. So on the overhead, Yeshua is not saying, I've come to show you how to find God. Rather, he's saying, I am the uncreated, beginningless God come to find you. So the founder of every other major religion says, I've come to show you the way to God. But Yeshua says, I'm God come in the flesh. I've come to find you. Because you could never find me unless I come to you. and Unless I come after you. Now, these are two utterly different paradigms, utterly opposed to each other. And this is a problem for us in our modern Western worldview. Because the modern Western worldview is that all major religions are basically good uh, and also basically the same. They all teach general morality, uh, treating one another well, uh, and there are many different paths to God. So you need to decide which one is best for you. But Yeshua won't let that happen. Because if Yeshua is who he says he is, then Yeshua faith, by definition, is the one and only true religion. Because it's not founded by a sage or a prophet pointing to God, but it's God coming to us saying that he and he alone, again, John 14, 6, is the way and the truth and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but by me. So if he's right, then by definition, it makes every other religion false, or at least defective or deficient. But if he's wrong, then he's just a liar or a lunatic of megamaniacal proportions. And so if he's wrong, it's not just one religion among many. You should despise it. Now, many people say, well, I don't know if Yeshua was the son of God, uh, but, but I love his teachings, which only proves you've never actually read them. <laughs> you've never read his teaching. <laughs> because if you ever actually read the teachings of Yeshua, you would see on every page, they're absolutely saturated with his self-understanding of who he is. And we've tried to point this out throughout our series here on the book of Mark. So for example, at one place he says this in Matthew 23, uh, 34, he says, I keep sending you prophets and sages over the centuries and you keep killing them all. <laughs> what? Here's a human being who says, you know all those prophets and sages sent to Israel? I sent them. <laughs> or in Luke 10, 18, Yeshua says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What? Yeshua was saying, I was there in heaven before the creation of the world when Satan fell. And this type of self-understanding is on every page. Yeshua claims to be the creator, the Lord of the Shabbat, the Lord of the storm, the divine healer, the forgiver of sins, the judge of the world. He says in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And in John 14, 9, the one who's seen me has seen the Father. And in Revelation 22, 13, Yeshua says, I'm the Aleph and the Tav, or in Greek, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, either he is who he says he is, in which, in which case uh, Messiah, Yeshua, Messianic Yeshua faith is, is the one true religion, 
or he's not who he says he is, and he should be dismissed as a madman or demon-possessed. But either way, Yeshua faith will not simply fit on the shelf with all the other world religions. It can't. Yeshua does not leave you that option. Remember uh, the rock star Bono from U2, the famous group U2, the Irish rock group? He did an interview a while back in which the interviewer said this, Jesus has value and is ranked among the great thinkers of the world, but son of God, don't you think that's a bit far-fetched? And this is what Bono said, and we've got it on the overhead here. He says, no, it's not. The secular response to the Christian story always goes something like this. He was a great prophet. He had a lot of good things to say along the lines of others, like, like Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius. But Bono says, but Jesus does not allow you to say that. Messiah says, do not, no, don't call me a teacher or a prophet. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. So we're left, what we're left with is really this. Either Jesus is who he says he is, or he's a complete nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. <laughs> the idea that the entire globe, half the human race, has had its history completely changed by, by a nutcase, well, for me, that's what's far-fetched. And Bono, he's just being logical. So if you have just a mild response to Yeshua, you have no intellectual integrity. You hear what he says about himself, and if you think that he really didn't say these things, that these things are just legends, you know, written down years later, I highly recommend this book uh, called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. Uh, in it, he shows that the last two generations of biblical scholars uh, have rejected the old notion that the Bible is just a bunch of legends, written down you know, many years later. And he points out that when history was written in those days, the way an historian was able to authenticate the history was to get his information out of the mouths of still living eyewitnesses from firsthand living accounts. And if you read any of the four gospels, you'll notice that very often there's these bit characters that have nothing to do with the story. Uh, they don't advance the plot in any way. They're just these little bit parts. Uh, they're mentioned all the time here and there. So, for example, in the book of Mark, it, it would tell you about a woman or a man or a servant. Uh, but then all of a sudden in Matthew or in Luke, they get names. Uh, for example, who's the servant, uh, this servant of the high priest who gets his ear cut off in the Garden of Gethsemane in, in today's account? You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not tell you his name. But John reveals his name is Malchus. Why would he get a name? A lot of much more important people never get named in the gospel. Why does he get a name? And if you're asking that question, Balcom says you don't understand how ancient history was written. John lists his name because he was one of the eyewitnesses. And John's first and second century readers, they would know this. This isn't a legend. These are eyewitness accounts on the overhead. And if Yeshua really made these claims, and he did, and if you decide he's right, you've got to fall on your knees in love and commitment and say, command me and build your entire life around him. Or if you decide he's wrong, you should have nothing to do with him and you should utterly reject his teachings. Or maybe you, you can be temporarily neutral while you try to figure it all out and really, really look, seriously look into Yeshua's claims and study his life and his words and ask God to reveal to you the truth. But 
The position that has no integrity is to say, I kind of like Yeshua. He kind of inspires me. Uh, I kind of like his teachings. I come to shul every so often to check it out. I try to pray every so often. That lukewarm, fence-sitting, neutral approach has no integrity at all given Yeshua's claims about himself. To tepidly respond to Yeshua means you're not thinking, you're not listening, you really don't know who he is. Uh, He's making the greatest claim in the history of the universe when he says, I am. So on the overhead, number one, that's the greatest claim. Uh, And now number two, let's look at the greatest problem. Because believe it or not, this greatest claim is not the most surprising thing about this text. The second thing this passage teaches us is about the greatest problems, greatest problem we human beings have. When Yeshua says, I am he, or more properly, I am, what happens? John 18, verse 6. When Yeshua said, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, who is this who fell back? John 18, verse 3. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, this Greek word detachment is a formal name for a troop of Roman soldiers. These are imperial troops, stormtroopers, if you will. (laughs) And these imperial troops, they would have been battle-hardened, tough, professional soldiers. They'd been through the wars. Uh, This is the best fighting force on the face of the earth. Plus, they also had, they with them, the temple guards and the officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And then on the other side, here's Yeshua, meek, mild-mannered, carpenter, rabbi. And he stands up and he says, I am... And this entire group of imperial Roman troops and Jewish temple guards and officials are all knocked flat on their backs. Why? Now, if you read through the scriptures, you'll see what we have here is an example of a very important teaching. That no one can stand on their feet in the presence of God. Everyone falls to the ground. So, for example, in Yehezkel, Ezekiel, chapter 1, God appears to Ezekiel. We read this in Ezekiel 129. Uh, Ezekiel 129. Like the appearance of a rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down. Oh, or in the, uh, 2 Chronicles, chapter 5, the, the dedication of the temple. The Shekinah glory descends. We read this in 2 Chronicles 5, verse 13. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. The priests were knocked flat at the presence of the Lord. When Peter realizes who Yeshua is, after this great miraculous catch of fish, he cries out in Luke 5, verse 8, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And Peter falls at Yeshua's feet. Over and over and over again. When people come into the presence of God, they are overwhelmed. Like Isaiah, who says in Isaiah 6, verse 5, Woe is me, I'm ruined. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah says, I'm coming apart. Why? Because no one can stand in the presence of God And so here, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, it's like Yeshua, he's flexing his muscles a bit before he gives himself up, uh, before he goes to the cross. He briefly shows who he really is. 
And even just this brief glimpse of his glory is enough to knock an entire Roman detachment flat. And here's why. When you get into the presence of something infinitely bigger and greater than you are, you are knocked off your feet. So for example, if a 300-pound boulder were to crash through this building right now and fall here on the stage, I would lose my footing. <laughs> if you get into a current of water and it's too swift for you, you lose your footing. If you're in a battle and you lose your footing because the enemy is too strong for you, you're swept away. And if you lose your footing in a battle, you're a goner. You know, in the battle, if you fall to the ground, you're gonna be shot or, or, or uh, stabbed or, or speared. That's why it says in Ephesians 6, verse 13, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after having done everything, to stand. Because in ancient times, if you were still standing at the end of a battle, that means you've won. And if you lose your footing, you've lost because the enemy's too great for you. Now what the Bible is saying over and over again is that in the presence of God, no one can keep their footing. And so we, we have here over and over again, we're, uh, we're going up against our modern paradigm of spirituality. You know, it's popular today to say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Well, what do most people mean when they say, I'm spiritual? Well, for most people, God is a divine presence, a divine spirit of love. And spirituality means I'm in tune with that. And so spiritual feelings mean warm, wonderful, inspiring. This noted scholar, Rudolf Otto, uh, did cross-cultural studies of the experience of God across many different cultures. And here's what he found. He studied people who did not merely just believe in God, but who claimed to have actually experienced the reality of God. And when he did, they experienced what Otto called in Latin, the mysterium tremendum, the terrifying mystery. When people actually got near the presence of the holy, it was traumatic. It was not a warm fuzzy. It was not groovy feelings. It wasn't wonderful. It knocked them flat. Even the famous atheist, Adolf Huxley, uh, said this about this terrifying mystery of encountering the divine. We have it on the overhead. He says, the literature of religious experience abounds in references to the pains and terrors overwhelming those who've come suddenly face to face with the mysterium tremendum. And this fear is due to the incompatibility between man's, man's egotism and the divine purity between man's self-aggravated uh, self, uh, separateness and the infinity of God. Getting close to God is traumatic. Nobody can stand on their feet in the presence of God. Everybody's knocked over. Why? All of our self-images are based on performance. Our self-images self is a very fragile thing. For some people, their self-image is based on things like, I'm a decent person. I'm a good mother. I'm a good father. I'm a decent chap. For others, their self-image is based on things like, here's the money I've made. Here are, here's the school I've graduated from. Here are the talents I have. Here's my title and my position at the company. There was a recent New York Times article, I love this article, a recent New York Times article about a group of alumni from an Ivy League university. And they're very upset 
because surveys were showing that fewer and fewer people realized that this university was actually part of the Ivy League. Everyone, of course, knew Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Cornell, but they didn't know that this school was also part of the Ivy League. And these alumni were very upset, and they said, we've got to do some PR. We have to advertise and promote our school's credentials. We've got to change public perception. Why? And they said this, if you get into and graduate from an Ivy League college, that's your identity. And therefore, people don't know that it's an Ivy League school. Our very identity is at stake. <laughs> now, I know we're probably laughing at this, but think what happens when you don't get the job or you don't get into the school. You know your identity is fragile. You know your self-image is fragile. And this is the reason why. When we get into the presence of superlativeness, it's traumatic. So for example, if you have to, uh, to live or to work with someone who's so much better looking than you, or so much smarter than you are, or, or so much more talented than you, or so much better at something that you thought you were good at, it's traumatic. Your self-image starts to collapse. It starts to be crushed. You want to get away from them. And if, and if that's how traumatic it is to be in the presence of human superlativeness, and human glory, if you start to feel yourself coming apart, then please realize it is far, far worse with God. That's why when Isaiah goes into the temple and he sees the Lord high lifted up and he saw the cherubim, the, the cherubim uh, singing, kados, 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 holy, holy, holy. And there was smoke everywhere and he could hardly see, but when he gets near the glory of God, we read this, Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me, he cries, I am ruined from a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm, I'm coming apart in the presence of God. Nobody can stand in the presence of the Lord. Nobody. But we have completely lost this truth in our culture. We just think of God as some kind of warm fuzzy. But the scriptures say that's wrong. And even common sense says that's wrong. You can't stand to be around people who are so much better looking than you and smarter than you and more talented than you. You feel mediocre. Uh, you feel inferior uh, when you're around them. Well, if you can't even stand in the presence of human superlativeness, what is it like to get in the presence of God? Think of Judgment Day for a minute. Now, whether you're a believer or not, on one level, you should hope that there is a Judgment Day. Uh, because you look around this world, you see injustice uh, and exploitation and, and murder and enslavement and torture and totalitarianism and genocide. And if there's a judgment day, then one day all this will be rectified. If there's a judgment day, no one will get away with anything. If there's a judgment day, then someday everything will be put right. And therefore, on one level, everyone should hope for judgment day. Because if there is no judgment day, what hope is there for the world? But here's the problem. If there is a judgment day, what hope is there for you or for me? So for example, I know I've used this illustration before, but let's say someone invisible was following me around. Every time they heard me tell someone how they ought to live, they wrote it down. So what they were doing was, was um, compiling my standards for, for human behavior. Not God's standards, not the Ten Commandments, 
Not Yeshua's standards, no, my own standards. And if on judgment day, that person suddenly appears and says, I'm gonna give you the most fair judgment day that anyone could ever have. I'm not gonna judge you based on God's standards. I'm not gonna judge you based on Yeshua's standards. I'm not gonna judge you based on the 10 commandments. Let's just judge you based on your own standards. And if he did, I could not stand. And I, w I would not be able to keep my footing. And neither would you. If you were judged even by just your own standards. If Yeshua in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, who was veiling his glory, and who was about to, to lay aside his glory on the tree, uh, uh, if no one in the garden could stand before him and keep their footing, how will any of us stand before him when one day we meet him face to face in all his blazing glory? How will we stand before him on the real judgment day? And the answer is, on our own, we won't. And that's the great problem of the human race. So on the overhead, we've seen the greatest claim and the greatest problem. How will we stand? Now number three, the great solution and the greatest mission in the world. After the crowd draws back and they fall to the ground, we read this in John 18, verse 7. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Yeshua of Nazareth, they said. Yeshua answers, I told you, I'm he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost any of those who you've given me. Now notice, when the soldiers arrive, all of the disciples, all of the disciples, not just Yeshua, but all of the disciples are now in mortal danger. There's probably 200 or more soldiers there. The word detachment in Greek means at least 200. Uh, they brought this many, why? Just in case they found Yeshua, this dangerous insurrectionist, surrounded by a crowd of followers. So they brought a lot of extra soldiers for crowd control. And the protocol was that when you're arresting a dangerous insurrectionist, you also arrest all of his followers. There were 200 soldiers, only 12 disciples, actually now only 11, right? Because Judas betrayal. So these disciples, they were all most certainly all going to be arrested that night along with Yeshua. And no one would have ever heard of them again but Yeshua very deliberately says, it's me you want, it's me you want. John 18, verse 8, Yeshua says, I told you that I'm he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. On the overhead. Interestingly, this phrase, let them go, also means forgive them. Forgive them and take me. Me for them. Substitution. Let them go and take me. Take me, he says, and let them go. Do you remember the classic 1992 movie, The Last of the Mohicans, starring Daniel Day-Lewis? This is exactly how it ends. It takes place in America during the French and Indian War in the mid-1700s. There's three main characters, Duncan, a British officer, a Hawkeye, who's half colonial, half Indian scout, and they both love beautiful Cora. But Cora loves only Hawkeye, not Duncan. At the end of the movie, they've all been taken captive by the Hurons. And they're standing before the chief, before the, the bar of justice for this Indian tribe. Now the chief is speaking French. Everyone there knows French except Hawkeye. So Duncan is translating for him. And the chief says, Cora must die. 
she must burn in the fire for the sins of her family because of the things her father has done against my tribe. She must die for the sins of her family. And you two, Duncan and Hawkeye, you may go free. Hawkeye is very upset. And he turns to Duncan and he says, tell the chief in French, take me. Take me instead. Me for her. Duncan turns to the chief, says something in French that Hawkeye doesn't understand. Hawkeye says to Duncan, did you tell him? And Duncan says, yes. And suddenly the chief nods and the warriors give Korah to Hawkeye and they grab Duncan and throw him into the fire. And suddenly Hawkeye realizes that what Duncan has done is out of his love, out of his love for someone who did not even love him back, he says, take me before the bar of justice. Let them go and take me. And he dies a substitutionary atonement. He dies in the fire. And the last scene of the movie, his arms are outstretched in the shape of someone dying on a cross. It visually looks like he's being crucified. And that's what Yeshua is doing. He tells the guards, take me and let them go. He saves his disciples. He saves his disciples. But what about the rest of us? And the answer is in the last words of our text. John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter and his sword drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Yeshua commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, first of all, as a little side note, he, people get all hung up by Yeshua's statement in this parallel passage in Matthew 26, 52, when he says, all who live by the sword shall die by the sword. That is not an endorsement of pacifism. It is not a prohibition on bearing arms, especially in self-defense. Indeed, Yeshua is the one who told them to take the swords with them. Rather, here, what Yeshua is doing is he is referencing the Torah principles of Mita connected Mita, measure for measure, uh, and Kovachomer, light to heavy. He tells his disciples, do not resist. If he had wanted to, he could have called down 12 legions of angels to assist and to defend him. But he didn't need the 12 disciples to take up weapons in his defense. If he didn't want 12 legions of angels, how much more he did not want or need 12 disciples to defend him. Because if he had chose the option of, of delivering himself, he could not fulfill the prophecies about the Messiah's suffering, uh, the atoning substitutionary death and resurrection. Matthew 26, 54, he says to his disciples, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled? Which say that it must happen this way. And so he says in our passage in John 18, 11, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The cup, you know what this is. If you were here last week, we discussed it. All through the Tanakh, all through the Hebrew scriptures, the cup is the cup of God's wrath. It's a reference to judgment day. The cup is what God is going to make the tyrants and the oppressors of this world drink on judgment day. The cup is suffering. The cup is punishment and judgment and justice. And on judgment day, all the evildoers are going to drink from that cup. 
It's what Yeshua is saying here when he declares in John 18, 11, shall I, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He's saying, I'm going to the cross. And on the cross, I'm going to have the judgment that you deserve fall on me. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, his stripes, we are healed. Yeshua is saying, everything you deserve is going to fall now on me. I will go to the scaffold. I will go into the fire for you. And the overhead, on the overhead, secularism says there is no judgment day. And so all the injustices of the world will never be rectified. Traditional religion says there will be a judgment day, so you better be good or else. But the gospel says, yes, there is going to be a judgment day, but the judge came to earth and was judged in our place. Yeshua, the Messiah, is the judge who was judged because he did not want to lose any of you. John 18, verse 9. This happened so the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you've given to me. Yeshua went into the fire for you. He said, take me, take me and let them go. I'll take the judgment so that on judgment day, you can stand on your feet because you're accepted in Messiah. Now, do you realize what this means? Now, imagine believing this, really believing this at the bottom of your heart. If you believe Yeshua is the judge who came to earth and instead of justly smiting us, he went to the cross and took our judgment day upon himself. So that on judgment day, you can stand knowing that he took your sins on himself. If you really believe this, that on judgment day, you can stand and not lose your footing, this means you will not lose your footing now. So for example, what happens now when people criticize you? Does it make you lose your footing? You don't have to. You can say, who cares what they think? Why? Because the king of the universe loves and accepts me. I'm not on trial anymore. The verdict is in. I'm not guilty. I'm an adopted child of the king. And if you know that on the last day, you're going to stand on your feet, that it will help you to stand now and not lose your footing when the world attacks you. This truth will keep you from losing your footing, not only when you're criticized, but also even when you're wronged. You see, when you're wronged in this world, if you don't believe there is a judgment day, you're gonna feel, I've gotta get back at that person. You'll lose your footing, you'll become hard, you'll become angry, you'll become bitter, you'll become cynical. But if you know there is a judgment day, where everything will be set right, where you'll be standing, you can keep your footing here. But what if you say, okay, well, well, I'm trying, but, but I'm not keeping my footing very well. You know, I know the gospel here in my head, but I'm not really living it on a daily basis. Guess what? You have a comfort in this passage. Look at Peter. Peter's been three years in, in, the, in graduate training under Yeshua himself. Yeshua's been telling Peter all about this moment. For three and a half years, Yeshua's been telling the disciples, I came to die. I did not come to rule and conquer right now. I came to give my life. I'm going to be betrayed. 
I'm going to be given over to the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. Yeshua has been getting his disciples ready, preaching them the gospel for three and a half years. And now the key moment arrives. And what does Peter do? He gets out his sword and he attacks. Very encouraging to me, Yeshua didn't turn to the soldiers at that point and say, you know what, I've changed my mind. Take him. <laughs> Why didn't Yeshua say, I'm supposed to die for him? Why didn't he say that? You know, I'm supposed to die for this one who, who denied me three times, who disobeys me, who falls asleep on me, who after three and a half years still doesn't get it? But Yeshua doesn't say that, does he? What he says in essence is, okay, Peter, let's go over the gospel one more time. The cup, the father, drink, judge. <laughs> this is unyielding love. No amount of pain will stop Yeshua from saving you. No amount of, of, of your stupidity will stop him from saving you. No amount of you screwing up will stop him from loving you. And that assurance of his commitment to you, if you've placed your saving trust in him, will help you keep your footing no matter what. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Let's the music team to come on up. Thank you, Father. Thank you today for these great truths. The Yeshua is the word of God come in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. You, Yeshua, are the great I am. <laughs> you, Yeshua, you're the king, the Messiah, our great high priest, our rock and our redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Uh, you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by you. And you are the judge. You're the judge who was judged. You took our punishment. You became our atonement, our ransom, our sacrifice, our substitute. You said, me for them. Take me and spare them. Take me so I can save them. Yeshua, you are who you said you are. And so we fall on our knees before you, Lord, in love and commitment. And we say, command me. Lord Yeshua, I want to build my entire life around you. Help me to stand in the full armor of God with the assurance of my salvation. So I can take criticism, uh, not freak out or lash out. Because I know that I'm loved to the skies by the only opinion that counts. And when I'm wronged, I know that you're the judge. And that vengeance is yours, not mine. So I can keep my footing in any circumstance and not fall. Thank you, Yeshua, for this great love. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Shabbat shalom.